No, you wouldn't have done. You know, we're talking about Alan Partridge. Yeah. The day. So he originally was a character who did the sports on a show called Not the Nine O'Clock News. I've heard of that show. Or was it the day today? One of the two. Um, and it was um, a satirical news show. Mm. I think it's the day today. Um, and there's a great compilation of uh, like bits he put together for like his World Cup coverage um, and just things he says. And it's just stuff like, oh, that man must have a foot like a traction engine. That's <laughs> liquid football. Stuff like that. So good. The, football, the goalie has football pie all over his shirt. It's just, it's just so good. Football pie. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I, I absolutely love that fucking video. It's very good. So, yeah. That's delicious. Delicious. Delicious football pie. Mm. Hey everybody and welcome to Hey Brew. This is episode 19. I've been reliably informed before mm-hmm. we started recording by Mike of Hey Brew, the podcast about beer and storytelling. Uh, each week one of us brings a beer and tells a tangentially often related story. My name is Elliot. My name's Mike. That was almost a smooth opening by me there. I kind of got it all together. All no, you the did wrong, pretty well. Wrong order. But I don't well, know. Oh, whatever. Mate. We're here on the other side of the intro. Let's just keep moving. <laughs> um... Oh, it's already warm in here. Okay. Yeah, I know. Um, we're going to be complaining probably a little bit about this. It is a 40 billion degree day in Melbourne. I think 44. Yeah. And it is windy as all shit. It is like apocalyptically windy out there. It is like standing in front of a, a hairdryer. Mm. That it is really just is. blasting you right in the face. Mm. But industrial sized. Yeah. Like for big industrial heads. Yeah. One that's designed for drying buildings. Yeah. It's fucking wild. Mm. Um. So today's going to be slightly different. I'll tell you why. I'm going to spring this on you in a little tell bit. Tell me more. Tell me more. But um, Mike, beer news. We've done quite a lot of drinking over the last few weeks. Yeah. So right now it's the 30th of December. Basically mm. since Christmas Eve-ish, you and I have been drinking a lot. Most of it together. Mm. Um, we had a pretty good Christmas day here at mine. Dees. Heidi Dees. Um, four or five of us sort of throughout the day. Mm-hmm. A lot of drinking, a lot of shenanigans, a lot Plenty of eating. Of yeah. Uh, it was a really good day. I had a good time. Yeah, it was great. It's Thank you time, once again for hosting. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever done it, and it went better than I thought it would. Mike recently converted to Christmas. Yeah. He used to be a uh, Kwanzaa kind of guy. <laughs> no, I didn't. No. <laughs> I don't even know enough to make a joke about that. Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I will say is that I went to Moondog World yesterday for the first time. Damn, that's a good place. Yeah. I wish I hadn't gone when it was 38 degrees. Yeah. It's it, quite toasty. Well, because it's basically in a giant tin shed, so yeah. it's hot. It becomes like this furnace on the inside. Well, to, to, to keep it cool, they had to open the roof yeah, to the sun. Yeah, which is not really just, helping. Just marginal. You need, like, industrial air conditioning for a thing that yeah. size. It's, it's wild. large. Brew, brew is good, though. Yeah. Um, I had the stout that you and TJ claimed was one of the best things you ever drank. The Lervig Cheesecake Stout. Do they actually have it? Yes. Okay, because I've because I've been there since that beer festival. They've got it they on had, tab right now. Yeah, well, they had Lervig stuff, but they didn't have that, even though they had just been there. Mm. Um, but that's interesting. What do you think of it? I wasn't that impressed. No? I, to be honest with you, didn't really taste the cheesecakiness to it. I no. was a little bit drunk by that point, but I wasn't like battered, so maybe I could have had it a bit earlier. Mm. But I thought it was just an okay, okay Imperial Stout. Yeah, okay. I like, it was I th- fine. I think my memory of it is like the cheesecake flavor in it is there it's not strong but it's just a really good sweet sort of stout yeah yeah i think that that's probably it tj was quite disappointed at me for not loving it as much as he did I mean, that's fine you can you can like what you like i don't mind no that's not how that works we can't Peer just pressure i mean if we just drink the same beer this show is only going to go so long 
That is a good point. <laughs> One episode. Yeah, um, we're never going to disagree on anything. Mm. Um, speaking of um, different kinds of beer, the 10 years in 10 beers article that I've clipped out of, I want to say the AFR, Australian Financial Review, um, is in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to go through them. I want sort of just a very quick, pricey... So when you say 10 years in 10 beers, what are we, what are we looking at? Oh, here? yeah, sorry, I didn't really explain it no. at all, which was um, the subtitle is The Rise of Local Crafties. Um, this is the sort of um, beers that have sort of changed the landscape over the last 10 years, seemingly. Okay, so beers um, of the decade in some way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is by a guy called Max Allen. Um, don't know anything about Max Allen. I'm not associated with the AFR. Um, mm-hmm. Not getting paid for them by this. Paid by them for this, mm-hmm. annoyingly. So consider this free advertising Australian Financial Review. I know you probably need it, print media. Yeah. It's a dying breed. Yeah. <laughs> they probably have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> probably about beer. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, top of the list, Stone and Wood Pacific Ale. Decent. We've all had it. Great yeah. beer. Yeah. Um, I can do it on right now. It's yeah. hot as fuck already. Also, it's a bit of a game changer because it was probably like that, one of those very earlier ones that was just like a damn good craft beer and it still is was that, in its independent style and all that sort of stuff. Is, I don't know if it says there, but like, is that one of Stone and Wood's first beers? I don't know how long they've been around, to be 2009. Honest. Yeah, right. So, I think it was there. Their first, or at least their, it was definitely mm. their first, like, big one. Yeah, okay. That's what made them famous. Mm. Um, next one, Feral Hop Hog Pale Ale. Another great oh, beer. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had that recently. Still really it, good it holds pale. Yeah. yeah. Um, very decent uh, at WA. Mm-hmm. They got acquired uh, a little while ago to Feral, so they've fallen off the wagon in terms of the indie darlings scenes yeah. like that. But who who owns them? Uh, I want to go Coca-Cola Amatil. Really? Mm. Yeah. Um, Two Birds Sunset Ale out of... Um, uh, Spotswood and Vic. Uh, I know I've had it, but I just can't recall how it is. I think I think uh, I've, I've had I, it. Quite I haven't had it in a while. It's a decent fair. beer. I mm. think um, Two Birds is always like just good. Yeah, like I, I, they've, they've I don't done, want to sound disparaging, but they've never they've done a couple of things where I've been like, oh, that's great. But generally, they're like, oh, this is a good beer. Yeah, I'd say like across the board, pretty decent. Mm. They've done a couple of things which are like a little weird or experimental, and some stuff that's sort of. Adelaide Field for, for them I think they did the taco beer yeah that was one of the first ones that got them sort of famous as well yeah. that was really fun I like yeah. that beer yeah um, La Sirene Praline or Praline Belgian Chocolate Ale oh yeah uh, one of your favourites this is basically what turned me on to a lot of the local craft beer scene mm. here because I yeah this was back when I worked with you and the Beer Deluxe and Hawthorne was really close and we mm. used to go there all the time uh, and they uh, like the guy behind that worked behind the counter at the time was really into the craft beer scene and they had that on tap it had just it was like just after it had won all the awards at gabs that yeah, year right and he was like look we've got a keg of it and it's really hard to come by you have to try it and it blew my fucking hair off yeah and then i went to like the bottle store just up the road and it was like 22 dollars a bottle and they had like two of them and mm-hmm. that was pretty rare even then so yeah it's a little more easy to find nowadays but at the time it was yeah, basically my my gateway drug in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. to to where I am now. Fair play. Well, thank you for that. Mm. Um, next one, I Pirate Life Throwback Session IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, I drink quite a lot of uh, Throwback and a lot of Session beers at the moment actually, so I'm mm. really into those. Um, yeah, I really I really like that. I think it's yeah. a really nice, tasty mid strength. Mm. Um, it's got flavour to it without it being um weak or you know watered down yeah feeling. do you know does it say there do you know what the percentage on it is yeah it's it's three and a half yeah uh, okay. it's the same as like the stayer and there's someone else has got a mid-strength uh, mm. in that group as well yeah so Captain it's intensible by bolter yeah it's really easy for beers like that to kind of lose a bit of flavor because they're not 
putting as much alcohol in it and mm. you just you know don't get all of that out of it at the same time um but yeah no that's that's a really good one of those that still tastes like you're drinking a, beer. Sort of a more full-bodied kind yeah. of beer um moving on to bolter as it happens bolter xpa queensland i think probably the biggest craft beer in australia and um yeah that's recently uh, also acquired um mm. again a lot of people you know spat on their name afterwards and stuff like yeah. that and for me it's more of a wait and see thing like it was the same yeah. thing with pirate life right like yeah. if if they managed to as a brand stick to their values and their stick to their guns but they just have more distribution and production capacity great mm-hmm. um so yeah i'm still sort of i guess waiting to see like the pirate life thing seems to have shaken out pretty well yeah i'd say so. um well the th- i know the guys like, from Volta have um secured in the contract over the next five years that nothing's going to change like yeah, at okay. all yeah like they'll only have more money going in but yeah the recipes I'd, the people the ip the way it's transported and stored mm, everything has to remain the yeah same just, as now. I, I know that with some uh craft brewery acquisitions maybe a couple of years down the track the head brewer leaves and then mm. things kind of shift a bit so yeah. that's why i say it's a wait and see thing um i still tend to bias towards independent breweries yeah, in terms of same. what i purchase but um it's still good beer yeah uh so it's not it's not like I'm writing them off. It's just see how, you we'll go. see how it goes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the just very quickly, Bolter XPA. Yeah. Great beer. Delicious. Yeah. Absolutely. Sessionable and fantastic. Um, Three Ravens, juicy uh, New England IPA. Mm. I, I love that beer. I like it. Yeah. Really, really good. Yeah. Uh, Three Ravens are pretty banging. They're not far from here either. Yeah. They're actually just around the corner from Moondog World. Yeah. Which is just up the road from Tallboy and Moose. It's, it's a quite dang- dangerous. It's area becoming a in. dangerous suburb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people don't say that about good things usually no. becoming a very dangerous solo yeah. um three guys with beards and uh they don't they have knives but they all have cutthroat razors but that's just because they're all barbers yeah um next one sailor's grave down she goes which i think is probably one of the best names in the world yeah i um, don't think i've ever seen this beer not had it no i like a goza though and i like sailor's grave so i'll give that a look yeah i think, I think that might be the first beer in this list that i've not had before <laughs> well it's the last three that i've never had which yeah. is this one um Boat Rocker, Daddy Cole, more cool. I don't know how you pronounce that. It's K-O-E-L. I assume cool because cool. that's the majority yeah. of the joke. Um, yeah, yeah I've never, never heard of it. I like Boat Rocker though. Do some, yeah. good, some good stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the last one, I think I have had this one. I think we had it when I was at um, Carwin, mm-hmm. uh, which is Wildflower sent Phoebe's Australian Wild Ale. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I remember we were there that one time and most yeah, of the taps were Wildflower yeah. stuff. So that, that, is that a fairly recent brewery? Because it feels like they've just exploded out of nowhere. It does a little bit, but if if what I think is true and they've just tried to pick one beer for each of the years, then that makes sense. It's possible. Yeah. Because I know like the, the La Serene Praline there was sort of, I don't know, 2016 or so. Yeah. Um, um, maybe No, sorry, maybe 2014. Let me just double check. It really hasn't said... It's just what his method 10 is, beers, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, mean, I think it's just like the top ten beers in the last ten years. I mean, it's it's his article. He can do what he wants. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, I don't disagree with any of them. I think they're all good. I yeah. wouldn't necessarily put them in my top tens, but the thing is, he's obviously tried to find beers that are readily available rather than yeah, mad fucking and maybe just like kind of spanning some different styles as well. Yeah, because you you could easily do this list with just IPAs. Yeah, <laughs> and I probably would. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that was that. Now. Today, Mike, we have, um, I want to say a special beer, mm. um, but it, it's just something a little different. Um, we're going to be drinking mm, the homebrew we made. Oh, um, finally. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I've brought a bottle of that to try, and okay. I am not going to do any of the tasting stuff. You are. 
because I have already been drinking it, okay. and I, I mean, also I'm, I feel weird about doing that. I'm still going to ask you for your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm going to do that after you've given yours because I don't yeah. want to like influence that. Yeah, no, that's fair. So, the uh, artwork for the bottle I've gone for <laughs> is very reminiscent of Garage Project's House of Horrors battle Barrel Jack. Some yes. might say it is a reused bottle mm. of that. Some might say that you might just be very good at drawing. <laughs> Just fucking ripping off. All right. So the carbonation went well. Yeah. That's an easy bit. That's just... Wait. In there. Yeah, put the gas in there and wait. Now remind me what sort of style we were shooting for in yeah, producing sure. this. Um, God, there's a bit of sediment. That's all right. I'll let it settle. So this was probably better, but like... It was in my car, and I was trying not to let it roll around, but mm. it was lying down its side, so it's going to be a little bit. So. Yeah, that's all right. All right. We'll yeah, get take that one, maybe. Yeah, it looks a bit better. Yeah. All right. So what we were going for was a um, single hop pale ale. Mm -hmm. It had all centennial cascade, I think. Yeah, it was. Yep. It all cascade hops, and it um, was using. Pale malts, basically. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to handball directly to you. And yeah. also, you know as well as I do, I am not a proud person. So, be honest with me. I'm not going to be I mean, like... I was I was involved, but yeah, in a minor role. But the thing is as well, is like I, I had to do all the monitoring and shit yeah. like that. So, like, yeah, I feel yeah, like... It was, it was brewing at your house. Yeah. Mike, be uh, honest, brutally honest if you must, mm -hmm. but uh, you're out, poor boy. Uh, before I do, I'm just going to ask, you have no way of knowing what sort of the rough alcohol range is on this? Yeah, it's about it's about 3.54%, 3 actually. It's actually oh, quite low. Okay. Yeah. It, it's only because we made this that I'm giving it that little that second taste, just to yeah. really be sure. Um, it, yeah, certainly tastes like sort of a decent sort of pale ale. Um, the smell, like it definitely smells like those hops. Uh, like I remember from when you dumped them in and it, all the gas kind of escaped and mm -hmm. that the smell at that moment... There's a little bit of that smell to it. Mm. There's almost a little bit of the smell of like uh, the when when we had like all the water and the grain mixed together. That's kind of coming through a little bit as well, yep. which is not a totally pleasant smell, but it's also not super strong. So it's mm -hmm. only when I like linger in there trying to get a whiff of it that yep. it that it's there. Taste wise, it's definitely drinkable. Like there's no unpleasant aftertaste or anything like that. Um, going again um yeah like i it's i guess like middle of the road pale ale is, is kind of what what i'd say like it's not it's not it's it's weird trying to think of the words to describe this because it's not like people can go out and try it for themselves um that's a good point i'm trying to think of other beers to compare it to like it's not that super hoppy kind of flavor but it's definitely a little bit of that. Yeah. So if I had to compare it to something that's available on the market, I'd compare it probably to something like Fat Yak, which is like... Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's got a little bit more flavor than that. Though. Yeah, a little bit more. But it, it's it's like it's a very sort of like straight down the line pale ale. It's yeah. not as hoppy as I would like. I'd probably use more hops. Yeah. Um, a lot of the smell, I think you're smelling yeast as well. Yeah. It doesn't taste as yeasty as it smells. In fact, no. I, don't think, I think the yeast flavor is quite muted because mm. it's not probably fermented as well as it could have done. Yeah. So I could have double pitched yeast. Anyway... But it does have a bit of a yeasty aroma. Um, yeah, I think it, like, I'm not dissatisfied with it. I'm not like, oh, this is one of my best beers. Mm. This is just a very, like, this is a very average drinking beer. And I'm happy to have that mm. in my house just to be drunk. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. 
So and yeah. it's cool to be able to say like, I made this here, try it. Yeah. It's, it's also one of those beers that you can give to people because it's not going to be like, oh, this is a bit experimental and weird like some of my other beers. Yeah, true. This They could probably just drink and drink and drink. Yeah, and I'll say this is the first beer of yours that I've tried. Is it? Yeah, I, I've never been... Oh, yeah. I don't think I've been around when you've when you've done the other the other brews. Yeah, right, fair enough. Um, or it's been like a UNTJ thing, so you both kept um, the the end product. Well, I just don't think... Um, I haven't done any for a little while. And I, don't think, mm. I just don't think you've been around it. Um, uh, well, no, I'm pretty sure like the times that you've tried to do it in the last couple of years and you've asked me, I've always had something on. Yeah, it makes sense. Or, or like I haven't been able to put a whole day to, to being there. Yeah. Lousy scheduling. I know. Yeah. Lousy doing other things. Lousy life. I know. And having with one. All right, well. Yeah. So. So. What are we possibly talking about? Um like inside baseball it was quite funny because you were like oh maybe we could talk about this in an upcoming episode and I was like that's literally what I'm going to be talking about today <laughs> but uh, fair enough um, so what I thought about we could talk about today would be um, uh, <laughs> something confusing for this uh, uh, podcast Prohibition yeah I don't know where to begin with that yeah and I don't know if this is because of the constant constant drinking I've been indulging in over the last month that I've get to the point now where I'm like maybe temperance is a good idea <laughs> um, but no so Prohibition. So Prohibition, the movement kicked in in the 20s in, uh, in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when it was signed into law in the Volstead Act. Um, and it lasted from 1920 to 1933. Uh, it was called the 18th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Was it actually an amendment? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. What, I don't know if you have it in front of you. What was the text of that amendment? Is it basically I, like no drinking? Pretty much. I, yeah. I don't have it, to be honest. Um, I just thought it was like a law they passed. I didn't know it went all the way to an amendment. Oh, Jesus. Well, now I need to double check this because <laughs> it was called the 18th Amendment. And now I'm like, maybe it's a Maybe different- it was like an unofficial title that they mm. gave it. 18th Amendment. There's lots of bars called the 18th Amendment, by the way. I can imagine. Um, there's one in Geelong. Oh, I, I was there, actually. I was talking to someone about it the other night. Mm. Um, yeah. The 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution establishing a prohibition of intoxicating liquors in the United States. Okay. Um, No, that's that's all I need to know. No, no, no. Text now. (laughs) After one year from the ratification of this... No. Wow, it's really short. And it just basically says, like, it's going to happen. Rather than what exactly, but... Right. Anywho. Okay. So it was led in the early parts of the century by Protestant uh, groups, um, specifically sort of uh, Lutherians, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Um, I feel like I've heard that name before. They kind of are largely given the blame for this. Yeah, okay. um, Because they are. I mean, they were quite vocal about it, but it's all, you know... Like the they didn't start it, but they were vocally supporting it. Um, kind of they it? were they were instrumental in the whole thing, realistically. Right. But they're given like the brunt of the blame. Mm. Um, uh, it was quite heavily opposed by um, German Americans and Catholic communities, like Polish and Irish and Italians. Yeah, um, especially because you know in those countries and in Catholicism, alcohol is just a part of the culture. Yeah, uh, especially with like wine and sacraments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the People in favor were called dries and the people opposed were called wets, which I think is always quite funny. I'm a wet. Yeah. I'm um, very much a wet. And and, and the German-American um, pro uh, anti-prohibition movement was really kind of knocked for six during World War One when the Americans joined World War One. It was kind of like, cool, well, we're just going to keep our heads down now for a bit. Right. Um, so, I, Which I totally understand, realistically. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was called the Volstead Act. Uh, it was the legislation which set out rules banning the sale of alcohol, 
but uh, private ownership and consumption was not illegal. Um, so you're talking about just home brewing? Or is private ownership just like if you already have alcohol, yes. that's fine? So a lot of middle class people were going to liquor stores and um, wineries and stuff like that and just buying up inventory to store. Right. And um, I forget the names of the two presidents. Woodrow Wilson, I believe, was one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget who the other one was. Uh, maybe Franklin. Uh, no, maybe not Franklin. Um, what was the first Roosevelt called? I couldn't tell you. Teddy. Um, yes. I forget if it was those two. Um basically one of them moved his entire stock out of the white house when he um, stepped down as president and like took like all the wine in the white house wow and then Woodrow wilson basically moved all of his in they had shitloads like middle class yeah. people were prepared woodrow wet wilson yeah <laughs> wetty <laughs> wetty wetty roosevelt <laughs> it was a boozer um yeah also, um, things like religious wine for sacrament were also exempt from, uh, yeah, from, right. the, from the... So they were actually Act. using alcoholic wine. So I just assumed it was like prop wine, essentially. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's um, usually a nice Shiraz. <laughs> no. Um, so so there's, 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 there's kosher wines and there's, and there's um, um, yeah, sacrament wine and they're both very specific things. Right. Okay. I think the kosher wine might be more about the fact that he use eggs sometimes in the process i don't know sure i yeah i just always assumed it was something like that they made that wasn't alcoholic but they had ordained it as being you know used for that ceremony it's real wine yeah um so as we kind of know the legal ban on alcohol led to quite a rise in crime um as gangs came together to fill the supply gap Mm. i mean uh at the risk of quoting it and um referring back to it all episode the beer baron episode of the simpsons yeah. is fucking great yeah especially like fat tony right at the end it's like how fast can you flood this town with alcohol mr simpson he's like i'm out of that game fat tony leans over he's like four minutes it's just <laughs> like yeah that organized crime was like sweet this will this will fucking do yeah um i read about a thing called uh well, it's, it's much easier to produce than drugs yeah of other, of other forms yeah well i read about this thing called oh, i can't remember what the concept was it's was something in clergyman and mm. it's where op- opposing parties are both in favor of a single thing because they'll both benefit from it, but right. usually for different reasons. And okay. this one, it'd be like the temperance movement is in favor of it because they're like, well, people will stop drinking. And then organized crime was like, we could handle that because we can make a fuckload of money. Right. Okay. So it's like a common thing that enemies otherwise could uh, collaborate on. Yeah. Well, it's, it's or more agree like, on. Yeah they, yeah. they both want the same end goal but for completely different reasons. Yeah. And usually for then a different outcome after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So within um, a week of Prohibition going into effect, small portable stills went on widespread sale throughout the country. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, like, did, which, they not, did they not think about, oh, maybe we should also ban the sale of things to make alcohol with? Well, there's a few different reasons behind it. I kind of get into it a little bit later. But okay. um, like realistically, if you consider this is the 20s, how quickly they managed to turn it around and be like, stills for everyone. Like, yeah. so good. Um, so much so that the the Genna brothers, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. and I can, No, it'd be Genna brothers in... Um, Mm-hmm. Chicago's Little Italy actually provided hundreds of poor people with stills for free mm. and they paid them $15 a day to produce alcohol and then sold that to the speakeasies because right. they could pay them the money. They they, they would give them the stills, give them the ingredients mm. and basically produce alcohol at about a dollar a gallon, sell it to the speakeasies for three, four, five, six dollars a gallon, mm. make sure the money off it. Yeah. Um, it was a really smart move and there was a guy in Brooklyn in New York City called Frankie Yale who was doing the same thing mm. so it was a pretty common practice to basically then just like arm the poor 
to become a, a yeah workhouse and, and realistically they were like great extra ca- extra cash $15 a day back then like extra yeah. fucking gold yeah and I would assume they got to keep some of the product yeah most likely yeah um, so people would use these small stills to make 100% pure alcohol Mm-hmm. And then they would use something like um, corn or fruits or beets or potato skins as the base mm-hmm. and then basically cook up um, ethanol from that. Uh, then they'd mix it with glycerin and juniper oil um, to make it into a kind of disgusting gin. Yeah. Um, and then they'd have to split it 50-50 water to this gin mix um, to make it basically 50% alcohol. or 100 yeah, right. proof. Yeah, yeah. Um, for the record, it's said that everyone thought it was fucking horrible. Yeah. But it was That's what they had. better than nothing. Yeah. Um, and it gave rise to this um, name because what they'd do is they'd get the bottles and they'd put them under the tap and they'd fill it half with water. But these bottles that were producing like gallons of gin um, weren't big enough, uh, too big for the sink. So they used to have to use the bathtub tap. Right. It's bathtub gin. Absolutely spot on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually have a couple bottles behind me. Called bathtub gin. Yeah. So there's nice. Starwood Whiskey. I think they're down in Port Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have been a couple of years ago now, they put out a, a series of four seasonal gins. So mm. I've got like, I think the autumn and the winter ones, yeah, which have very different flavor profiles, but they were called their bathtub gin range. I don't know if they actually made it in a bathtub, but it, they, they definitely I made really it I really hope way. so. Yeah. I really hope it's like, oh, needs more dog. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just like disgusting bathtub gin from like one of the top distilleries in the country. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. And then um, this bathtub gin... Uh, tasted like shit. Yeah, I, believe, kind of agree. I believe it. It was fucking abysmal. I doubt the bathtubs are in good shape either. But also, like, in the nice way possible, like, this homebrew I've made here is okay. Mm. This is not my first rodeo. I know what I'm doing and I've mm. read up on it. And still, it tastes okay. Mm. These are just random peasants that didn't have access to the wealth of knowledge and the internet and the ingredients that I had being asked to basically make, like, uh, grain liquor yeah. in their kitchens yeah. covertly. And... And then just flavor it with juniper oil and glycerin. Is glycerin something you're supposed to consume in any way? Don't know. I believe... Because I know the phrase nitroglycerin, which yeah. is an explosive. But no, that doesn't... Because that's like saying sodium is really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what I mean. Like, I, I don't know about glycerin on its own. Oh, I was going oh, to say like... Uh, so, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's like an oil, isn't it? I wouldn't know. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I have no fucking idea. I'm sure it's fine. Um, <laughs> the seal of approval is, from the World Health Organization. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Fuck it. The, the, this is literally how people back then dealt with that problem. It's like, yeah. should we be really using glycerin? I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> could be worse. Could go back to war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could be worse. Could be in the temperance movement. Mm. Um, so yeah, as I said, it used to taste like shit. Um, and while mixed drinks, excuse me, mixed drinks definitely did exist before Prohibition, like realistically... Um, things like the mojito have been traced back to about the 16th century as a cocktail, okay. um, which is kind of mad. Um, but the speakeasies, horrendous gins, and like the need to remove some of the hor- horrible flavors from these mm. basically made cocktails fashionable. Yeah, well, n- necessary. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and it, it's basically what gave rise to the to the widespread of mixed drinks and and cocktails throughout really? uh, throughout okay. the world. Yeah, just kind of cool. I thought it was just fancy people being one of fancy drinks. Yeah, uh, bit of both. Yeah, it could be. But fancy, but I mean, less disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it did. This whole thing really led to a, a boom in alcohol production in the home. Um, yeah. 
not just in the cities, but in the countryside, you know, farms and all sorts of stuff. People were producing alcohol for personal consumption, for local consumption, but then also to sell to organized gangs for distribution. Yeah. It was like a really good moneymaker if you could just on the side, because basically you cook it and then you fucking leave it. It just yeah. does the rest of the shit yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity here to make money. Hmm. Um, so the um, there was a, for better word, like a police force for this called the Prohibition Bureau who I'm just going to be referring to from now on as the fun police. Um, <laughs> Good. The, the, uh, the fun police between 1921 and 1925 seized 679,000 stills from homes across America. And then had a wicked party. Yeah, I imagine it would be fucking sick. Even if it was just like, now we get to bash these up. Like, yeah. That would still be fun. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, on top of that, foreign-made alcohol that was smuggled into the country accounted for about $3 billion industry in 1920s, which wow. equates to about $41 billion in today's money. Yeah. I don't know what the um, the rum industry is worth nowadays, but $41 billion must be pretty close. Yeah, I mean, like, any of those major liquor markets are pretty fucking large. That's um, a fair point, yeah. Yeah, that's $41 billion, bruh. Yeah, it's wild. Absolutely mad money. Um, but it, it, it's really crazy because, like, the, all this prohibition was in place, but... Realistically, they had no, they had no stop on the supply chain. So grocery mm. stores and hardware stores sold everything you needed to produce alcohol at home. Yeah, they sold the stills, they sold the bottles, they sold the raw ingredients, bottle cappers, the lot. It's like here is everything you need to flout the law. Yeah, which is kind of mad. I mean, when we went to Keg King to get the stuff to make this beer, I was mm. looking around. I was like, yeah, this is just like taps and hoses and shit. You could get half of this at Bunnings. Yeah, you really if, can if you knew the right sizes for everything. Yeah. There um, were, there were, like obviously nowadays there's more specialized equipment and all that sort of stuff that goes yeah. into it but in terms of like a basic production a piece I could totally imagine it yeah and well, interestingly stills are illegal in Australia you really? could buy them at Keg King because I spoke to a guy who owns one of these stores yeah. before and I was like so what's the situation he's like for the taxation purposes and the money they would spend on policing it yeah the government just doesn't give a fuck Right. So they just let people steal their own alcohol. Because so few people are doing but it. But you just said the stills are illegal. Yeah. But they don't give a shit about it. Yeah. Because it's just like, it's not worth policing. It's going to be more money to police it. And what's the harm? I guess, yeah. And like, as you can see, people, nothing stops people. No. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so in 1929, the fund police estimated that there were 700 million gallons of homemade beer produced in uh, in that year. Wow. So to put that into perspective, that is 4,662,975,433 pints. I was really hoping you were going to say cans. Oh, fuck. But that's a lot I'm of pints. I'm a big fuckhead. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of pints. Yeah, it is. How many I feel like I've had over December. Yeah. I am dying. Um, <laughs> and then, um, so... I don't know if you've heard of the grocery store chain Kroger in America. I have heard the name. Yep. So there was Kroger and A&P with a quite big chain mm-hmm. grocery stores at the time. And they actually used to sell malt syrup in cans, which okay. is the sort of constituent malt ingredients, liquid sugar that you can use in homebrewing and still mm. get them today. You can get cans of like pre-made homebrew mix and you just pour it in with hot really? water and like some other sugars and yeast and huh. stuff. So this is how I started homebrewing. You can basically, yeah. you get what's just called a kit can. Mm. And you put the can in with some water, mix the fuck out of it, put some more sugar in, put the yeast in, and wait. Really? And you can get beer. You don't even have to, like, carbonate it or anything like that? 
I mean, when you like, that's just to get the raw beer, and then you're like, when you bottle it, you, right, you right, put sugar okay. in the bottle okay. and it carbonates it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was um, they were in 1927. Production of those cans alone was enough to produce six billion pints of homebrew. Shit. Yeah. So like, this is the thing. It's like, yep, no more alcohol, and everyone went, yeah, wink, yeah. wink. All Actu- right. Actually, counter offer. How about a fuckload of it? Yeah. <laughs> more poor quality alcohol. How yeah. about that? Um, and stupidly, the Volstead Act also allowed for, quote, the head of the family who has properly registered to make 200 gallons of wine a year. That sounds like a lot. It is 2.7 bottles a day for home consumption. That is a lot. That's plenty of beer. Yeah. Um, as a result of this, wine consumption tripled uh, compared to the five years leading up to Prohibition. Jesus. Because we were just like, well, I can make my own wine. I'll just do that then, I guess. Yeah. Great. Like, it was a real fucking failure, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, wine grape acreage in California went from 97,000 acres to 681,000 acres uh, <laughs> almost overnight. Yeah, good job, Volstead Act, you yeah. fucking moron. Yeah, they basically created the Napa Valley. Um, yeah. And then people were, like, very openly, illegally selling winemaking supplies, um, including these things called wine bricks, which were, like crushed grapes with the stems and skins dehydrated so you basically just rehydrated it oh weird and you could make wine from that um and one company's packaging for a wine brick even read quote after dissolving the brick in a gallon of water do not place the liquid in a jug away in the cupboard for 20 days because then it would turn into wine yeah it's like uh back in new zealand i don't know if it was the thing here um but there was this, I forget the name of the, the store chain, but they were selling like hydroponic garden kits. Right? Oh, yeah. So you could just like grow it inside, not worry about light, that sort of thing. By it, he means marijuana. Well, that was the thing. Like their radio jingle, the the lines to this jingle were grow what you like, no one needs to know with a hydroponic wardrobe. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking mental. It might as well just said, don't not grow drugs. Yeah, yeah. Here's a kit that definitely won't allow you to grow drugs in your wardrobe fantastic <laughs> i love that um so on top of that as well like there was also industrial alcohol for using things like cleaning products mm-hmm. um cosmetics sac- tobacco etc that was all legal to produce yeah that's the front for your illegal booze operation well the thing is what they did as part of the vault that to uh, make it undrinkable they uh, decreed that alcohol um used for industrial purposes had to be denatured by uh, mixing it with chemicals such as wood alcohol or benzene right. to make it really unpalatable, really undrinkable, and really dangerous. Yeah. Um, so wood alcohol, highly, highly toxic, can cause nerve damage, blindness, and death if consumed. Uh, and it- I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of the put a weird color or a weird flavor in it so that you know you're not supposed to fucking drink it. But that is like you might actually fucking harm someone. Well, you also can't boil it off completely from industrial alcohol. Yeah. Like it's always going to remain as part of it. And it was assumed, therefore, that people wouldn't drink it. But um, people are dumb. Yeah, organized gangs used to employ their own chemists to say that they could get off, like get as much of it out as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously, pretty unsuccessful. Yeah. And this is what rot gut is. Have you ever heard of rot gut? I have. Yeah. I, is it? I'm assuming it's just some some kind of stomach sickness. Uh, no, rot gut is is the is the drink. Uh, oh, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it killed 50,000 drinkers during Prohibition. Yeah, okay. Doing this wood alcohol yeah. idea. Um, and many of those who were poisoned as a result, once Prohibition had been uh, lifted, sued the government for reparations. Amazing. Yeah. So it was one of the biggest failures of a pretty massive failure. Yeah. Um, it was a nightmare. Well, it's like even now looking at 
like the whole debate around decriminalizing marijuana, you look at like the states in the US that have done it and they've regulated it and put tax on it mm-hmm. and they've made a fuckload of money and nobody's died, which is like the main fucking argument is like yeah. people are going to die from marijuana. Get off your ass. Um, and it's still a hard thing to push past. It's like, no, you actually making this a criminal act is actually harmful. Yeah. Just stop it. Um, so there was obviously some um, lousy do-gooders who were trying to help enforce the act. Uh, um, yes. Clergymen were sometimes called upon to be vigilante groups to assist in uh, enforcing vigilante the Vigilante clergymen. Yes, in, to insist in the enforcement of prohibition. Okay. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I thought was really interesting was it said that um, American geography contributed to the difficulties in enforcing prohibition. So varied terrain of valleys, mountains, lakes, swamps, and extensive seaways, ports, and borders, right. which the United States shared with Canada and Mexico, yeah. make it exceedingly difficult for prohibition agents to stop bootleggers. And that's why they're asking for like local groups to come together. Right. It's like, yeah, you're old clergymen. You're not going to be good at this yeah but also were people brewing up in like the mountains and shit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) um and then another group of hated wankers that uh decided to be very prohibition and wanted to help enforce it Mm. was the kkk great and they talked a great deal about denouncing bootleggers and threatened private vigilante action against offenders and uh despite the large membership in the 1920s uh they were so poorly organized and full of that uh, they had no impact whatsoever on prohibition. But let's get on to the sexy bit of all of this. Crime. Yay. Yes, my favorite. So <laughs> prohibition practically created organized crime in America. Like it, it, there was already an existing sort of, uh, for want of a better word, affiliated crime groups and, you mm. know, groups of criminals, groups of yeah, thieves. Yeah, yeah. But they created organized crime as we know it. Um, So it provided members of small-time street gangs with the greatest opportunity they've ever faced, which is feeding the needs of Americans coast-to-coast to drink beer, wine, and liquor. Mm -hmm. Like, realistically, this is something that they... It's not like drugs, where it's a very niche market. You had something everyone had, and then you took it away. And it's like, well, I tell you who doesn't mind breaking the law? Mm. Criminals. Yeah, people who are already doing it. Yeah. So (laughs) it would be like if we just sort of denounced... If we got rid of meat today... Yeah. There'd be an organized crime like explosion in yeah. meat. Tell me more about these crime farms. Mm. Are you a crime in all? <laughs> Criminal. Um, <laughs> so um, during this time, some breweries were contracted to make something called near beer, which is like beer of less than 0.5% alcohol. Okay. Um, and racketeers would often convince them to just quietly make regular beer on the side. Uh-huh. Um and a, uh, in 1920, a gangster called Johnny, and I don't know if he's a word gangster, but I think it's an appropriate, just that I'll do for the meantime. Mm-hmm. Um, a racketeer named Johnny Torrio partnered with some other, oh, I've got gangsters here, um, <laughs> Whoops. and a brewer named Joe Stenson to make um, illegal beer, so you know, mm. good beer, in uh, nine legitimate breweries that he was connected to right. um, across New York. And then using a network of street criminals who he basically convinced to be, you know, they could become wealthy by helping him with distribution and with uh, taking and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, he and his partners took $12 million a year um, in this beer production and distribution racket around New York, around um, Chicago, sorry. Back then, too. Yes. Wow. Um, and then he t- uh, turned control of his racket over to his successor, a man that you might know as, and everybody else knows as because it's his name, Al Capone. Ah, yes. Yes. So, um Yeah. Crime basically became organized as a whole industry 
moving yeah. from running things like prostitution and protection to, you know, th- that was their organized crime to eventually mm. it became what you see in The Godfather. You know, they employed lawyers, they had accountants, they had yeah. brewmasters. They well, had- you, you basically said like this entire business model is illegal here you go. Yeah. It's a production line. It's a business model. It's a whole thing. They suddenly had a supply chain. They had boat captains, truckers, warehousemen. They had brewers. They had the importers, excuse me, importers, enforcers and all this Mm. sort of stuff. Absolutely amazing. They, they used to buy breweries and then use those. And then they'd run boats into international waters to pick up rum. Um, This is where the phrase rum running comes from. Um, And then they pay locals to make homemade booze. They owned the speakeasies where the booze was sold. They basically owned it from inception to consumption. Yeah. Well, please, that's, that's line actually. Inception yeah, yeah, yeah. to consumption. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it basically gave crime an opportunity to organize. To capture an entire market. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. wild. And pretty fucking cool, to yeah. be honest. Like, also, it's basically like, here's a fuck ton of money. Set up an empire. Go nuts. Yes. Yeah. It's just sitting on the table. Yeah. Um, and the main instigator of the modern American organized crime was a guy called Chuck, Charles Lucky Luciano. Mm. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Charles to sort of like uh, round this off because okay. it's quite cool. So um, Luciano uh, was an Italian immigrant from Sicily. Mm-hmm. And at the outset of Prohibition at the age of 23, he was working for an illegal gambling uh, boss called Arnold Rothstein. Or Rothstein. I don't mm-hmm. really recognize that. Um, by the mid-20s, uh, Luciano was a multi-millionaire. Uh, just from the racketeering around the alcohol sales. And uh, he was one of New York's top bootleggers. He was making and importing alcohol with other prohibition-rich associates. um, And they served a Sicilian boss, all collectively, called uh, Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masseria. Which I guess if you're a boss (laughs) and then giving yourself the nickname The Boss, like that's fucking doubling down. It's on the nose, isn't it? Um, So in 1930, Masseria's operation ran up against another boss in New York, a guy called Salvatore um uh, Maranzano uh and they basically tussled for control of organized crime in New York mm. um especially amongst the Italian community right and they had a uh, an ongoing conflict that was known as the um uh Castella Mamaresi Ma- uh, Castella Mamaresi the Castella Mamaresi the Castella Mamaresi war there we go okay <laughs> it's a long word yeah. and it's not english i don't know how to do this myself um and Luciano, who was obviously working for Masseria at the time, actually was also an associate of a couple of guys called Lansky and Siegel. Um, these are Jewish guys. And uh, Masseria was actually um, not particularly welcoming of Jewish guys. And Jewish organized crime in New York is actually massive. Yeah. Um, whereas Maranzano was. Um, so Luciano made the switch and jumped out of um, uh, Masseria's camp and joined uh, Maranzano's camp. And basically, it kind of suddenly having this influential and wealthy figure who's been part of his crew the whole time mm. join the enemy was a massive, massive issue yeah. for um, drama. Yeah, for Masseria. Um, and because he thought that Masseria was out to get him uh, in April 1931, um, Luciano arranged the death of Masseria. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so with Masseria gone, Maranzano became. Uh, sorry, Luciano's new boss, Maranzano, became uh, the boss of bosses. The new boss of bosses. <laughs> one boss to boss them all. Yeah, realistically. <laughs> and this, he allowed Luciano to run one of New York's five crime families. And they literally had like the five families. And then he was in head, the head of it all. Yeah, wow. Um, and Luciano um, found out a few months later that Maranzano was going to kill him. 
because I don't know why. I kind of presume like he was concerned that he'd already jumped ship once. He couldn't necessarily be trusted. Yeah. Um, so Luciano um, had him killed, uh, which made Luciano the new boss of bosses. Right. Um, but he had the opportunity to, he was like the undisputed leader of the New York Mafia at this point. Okay. And he had the opportunity to basically run as they had before, but he decided to tr- like reject that traditional position of boss of bosses. And instead he instituted a new organization specifically for the heads of crime families um, nationwide, called it The Commission, and it operated more like a board of directors, and they used to meet and talk to settle disputes peacefully and agree on course of action rather than just having all-out turf wars. I mean, that sometimes happens still, Mm. but they would treat it much more like a business. So once again, like it's legitimizing that as a... But also, these names are fucking cool. Like, Boss of Bosses, The Commission. Fucking so sick. Yeah. And like, these things that he put in place actually lasted, The Commission lasted well into the 50s. Really? Wow. Yeah, he was like, he changed organized crime forever all because he'd made money on bootlegging. Yeah, Mm. fuck. Yeah. Whoops. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> basically I, d- I didn't want to go into al capone too much because his story is pretty interesting on its ho- on its own yeah. so like i maybe we'll talk about him in another episode but yeah mm-hmm. that was that was one of the major players in this industry yeah um and like we see like on great gatsby how he's loaded because he was a bootlegger mm. it's not it's not fantastical yeah it's completely I mean, legitimate yeah, i would have i haven't seen or read great gatsby but I, great I, I would definitely believe that character yeah. being a rich bootlegger yeah well f scott fitzgerald was i don't know if he was part of the bootlegging scene or anything like that mm. but he was definitely connected to it all because he was right. a wealthy socialite back then you know um so there's one last thing i want to talk about um that came up out of this and we kind of touched on it before in another episode okay do you want to have a guess of something that was come out of the bootlegging and prohibition scene that we've talked about in the episode uh we dedicated a whole episode to it did we really yeah. Is it crime? <laughs> I'm just remembering the... Bo- it was invented in I was 20s. just remembering the bottle that had just the word crime on it. The secret ingredient invented is crime. Invented in the 20s. No, mm. I'm blanking completely. So, during the Prohibition era, you've got people out in the countryside creating booze en masse, mm-hmm. running stills or running breweries, and they've got to get that somewhere else. So that what they did is they employed locals... Um, and the bootleggers would give them a shitload of money mm-hmm. to buy brand new cars. Oh shit! Is it the hot rod stuff? It, it is. Yes. They strip all the interior oh, except wow. for the driver's seat out. They'd fill it full of booze, and then they would soup up the engines, fit stronger suspension, fit stronger floorboards. Well, they got a shitload of stuff to move. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and right. they basically use these souped-up automobiles to stay ahead of federal agents and local. Pol- sorry, stay ahead of the fun police while transporting illegal whiskey on back roads in the dark of oh, night. Oh man, that fucking owns. Yeah. <laughs> So the idea was fairly simple. Take a car that looked ordinary on the outside, modify the engine for greater speed, remove the floorboards, passenger and back seats to store as many cases of liquor as possible. Install, this sounds like my perfect car. Mm. Install extra suspension springs to handle the weight, a dirt protecting plate in front of the radiator and run the prohibited booze to customers by outsmarting and outrunning authorities. There were people manufacturing tires specifically needed uh, on the requirements of what bootleggers needed to drive through, you know, wet, mud, roads, gravel. And still be able to grip and yeah. keep in good condition and also not be torn off the rims. Tire technology changed because of prohibition. Because people needed tires that weren't going to burst so easy or pop off the rims. Dude, that whips ass. That's yeah. so good. They were saying there are people that like served decent amount of time in prison because they got a flat tire. Fuck. Yeah. Um, 
and they also it also uh, as we talked about on the hot rod episode brought up kind of like a whole new level of like mechanical expertise into the fold because they wanted to find good mechanics that could make their engines run faster and handle better yeah um, and then obviously as we said at the time 1932 Ford introduced the flathead V8 and the rest is history mm. and hot rodding sort of took over it to be a completely different thing but yeah, um, yeah so cool like it's very fast and the furious yeah yeah the runner effect of all of this was and this is the really interesting thing is that during and after prohibition they had all these guys that were like i'm the best driver i'm the best driver i've got the fastest car blah yeah. blah blah and they took their stock aka not racing cars oh no and they were like well let's see who's the fastest driver yeah. and they started getting competitive with it and there was a couple of like locally organized championships and then I think I know where this is going. They, I think it was in 1942, they organized the first um, North American stock car automobile race or something. Yep. AKA NASCAR, baby. Yep. Bootlegging started in NASCAR. Holy shit. Which is why it's considered to be the like, the, the like working man sport in America because it was never like you've got to be training baseball and you know all this well, like, or like playing college football or anything it's who can drive in a circle the fastest yeah <laughs> and at the time you could get a car and like people were mechanically inclined they could do something with it yeah like it wasn't wasn't as prohibitive as yeah. other sports were man so that's how nascar became that's nuts. so beloved especially in the south because that's where a lot well, of yeah. it was going on yeah, yeah. cooler eh? jeez i had no idea mm. good old booze <laughs> that's uh, what i take away from this Thanks, booze. Thoos. <laughs> Joke's never going to get old. No. It's quite quality. <laughs> I love that we both did the math to work out what to say and yeah. then said it. It's very oh, good. dear. Anyway, that Peter Serafinowicz rip-off aside, mm. uh, that's, that's um, Prohibition. Any, uh, any takeaways, any thoughts? Um, it's a takeaway again now on a pie again. Yeah. Sorry. As far as the story goes, there was... So much of that that I didn't realize there were like you could connect the dots from yeah. pro- prohibition to all of these things. That's I think the fun bit about it for me was reading. Yeah. It, I mean, like, oh shit, this is all because some dickheads didn't think we should drink. Yeah. Like, obviously, I could have guessed about like the organized crime aspects and to some extent the uh, stuff about like running booze around in the vehicles and all that stuff. But yeah. yeah, just all of the different connections to stuff I'd heard of or thought were unrelated for some reason. Um, that's yeah. nuts. Well, the other thing about it is like that, that kind of web that spreads out and you see mm. it kind of like building as you hear the story. I think that's really interesting. I'm a quite a visual person. So like for mm. me, I see it literally like as a, the Volstead Act is here and all the things that have come off that and have yeah. come off that. Yeah, I found it quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, and also, I think probably the most important cultural contribution that America's made as a result of the Volstead Act is Steve Earle's Copperhead Road. Fucking banger of a tune. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's always that as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, as far as the beer goes, um, I guess I'd just say the, the further I got into it, that sort of yeasty flavor started to come through a bit more. Yeah, there's a bit of sediment in the bottle, to be yeah. honest with you. Like, it wasn't it wasn't the best bottling. Mm. Um, there was things How, like... How's the stuff out of the keg? Better. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, this was warming up because it's so yeah. hot in here yeah. um, that the flavor wasn't as good by the end, uh, definitely. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the stuff in the keg's all right. You have to come around and give it a, yeah. give it a whirl, eh? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, um, I'd make some changes on that, personally, but... Um, on the beer. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think that's been discussed in another episode anyway. Yeah. So, but yeah. 
Good times. Yeah. I'll get me hankering to go start an organized crime racket as well. Probably don't, though. Hmm. What evidence would they have? Oh, this recording. Yeah, this thing that we put out on the internet of our own volition. Mm. <laughs> well, present Exhibit A, the Hebrew Archives. No. Has anyone listened to it? No, 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 but I assure you they talk about it. Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess um, the only thing to do, I guess, is to do the rap. Mike, what about um, over the New Year's period, if people wanted to look at, say, us mm. in picture form? Yep. Or read words rather than hear them. Could they do that? Uh, they could. M- most most of our, our social presence is sort of just, here's a picture related to the beer that we had for the episode, episode. yeah and we need to start doing more with it but yeah we keep getting drunk and forgetting yeah exactly right um so if you wanted to find us uh on your on your favorite social media platform assuming one of them is instagram facebook or twitter um we are on all three of those at Hebrew podcast um if you're not that way inclined we also have an email address uh which is hello that's my favorite social media it's hello at heybrew.zone uh, there's also that, the, that name again. Uh, it's hello at heybrew.zone. Thank you. Uh, there's also the website, which is heybrew.zone. It's yep. full of our episodes and some information about where to find us on your podcast platform of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if if your platform is on there, of course, we do have just the handy little RSS feed button, which will take you straight to that. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to add, feel free to add us on Untapped. Individually. Mm. Yeah. We don't have a Heybrew account. No. I don't know if that's a thing you can do, but we should look into that. Yeah, I was thinking about it yesterday. Yeah, um, yeah. My my Christmas Day check-ins were all over the map. Yeah, mine were a bit of a, a wild one. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, we super appreciate any ratings or reviews on your mm-hmm. podcast platform uh, of choice. Yep. Uh, and also subscriptions don't, to the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hit, hit that subscribe button. All of that stuff makes a huge difference to it. Really does to us showing up in front of other people that haven't come across us yet yeah it just helps us to get this word quote-unquote message out to quote-unquote people <laughs> the people mm, those people what do you mean those people what do you mean you people <laughs> um and that's that i think yeah all right sweet well um bear in mind this episode's coming out on january 1st so yeah. oh, uh, we've spoke quite quietly throughout so the dulcet tones should hopefully should soothe you into the new year i hope your hangover isn't too bad ladies and gentlemen and i hope you've enjoyed this episode of hey brew i was just gonna say get fucked 2019 yeah pretty much and hello 2020 we said at the end of every year though at this point the yeah. world's awful yeah it um now nah, look here's to a good new year to you all and i hope you all have a great uh new year's eve and uh, we'll see you all in 2020 yeah. where we drink some more beers and talk some more yeah do a lot more of that stuff yeah uh thanks very much i've been elliot i've been mike cheers cheers Can we turn that fucking aircon back on, please? Yes, I'm dog. literally sweating. I am oh. a sweaty bitch. Yeah. I don't I'm care. sitting here like my stance is very open. I'm trying not to let my skin touch the rest of my skin. Yep. I'm getting my arms. I stick to getting myself. some breeze under my arms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, like, I don't care if like this last like post-credits bit has some oh, aircon noise. Oh, yeah. It could because the way that that's moving, it's like it's like first hitting my feet, yeah, and then it's moving up. Mm. It's very nice. That tingle tangle. <laughs> what?